The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about privacy, as you know, and it's about the world of personal data which happens to be the lifeblood of business. And I've been reading this wonderful book called What Stays in Vegas, and the subtitle is The World of Personal Data, Lifeblood of Big Business, and the End of Privacy as We Know It by Adam Tanner. Let me tell you a little bit about our wonderful guest, Adam Tanner. He writes about the business of personal data, and he's a fellow at the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University, and he was previously a Neiman Fellow there. Um, Adam has worked for Reuters News Agency as Balkans Bureau Chief, based in Belgrade, Serbia, as well as in the San Francisco Bureau. He was chief there, and he has had previous postings in Berlin, Moscow, and Washington, D.C., He also contributes to Forbes and other magazines, and he is this author of this wonderful new book, What Stays in Vegas. You can find out more about him at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy, where you'll see his picture, JPEG of his book, and we link to his website, whatstaysinvegas.com. Thank you for joining us, Adam. It's nice to be here with you. So, Adam, tell us, what is it that got you interested in the business of personal data? So much of my uh, career, as you've just noted, I've worked as a foreign correspondent, and I've lived in many different countries and traveled widely. And I've always been interested in how uh, companies and governments and, and entities use and gather our personal information. So I had a chance to travel pretty widely in the communist world, in the Soviet Union and the communist Eastern Europe uh, countries before the fall of communism. And there is one episode that opens my book where I describe in 1988, before the very fall uh, of the Berlin Wall, one year beforehand, where there are 10 agents of the Stasi secret police that are following me around 
as I go and visit Dresden, this great cultural capital of Eastern Germany, part mm-hmm. of the uh, Soviet Empire, kind of the Warsaw Pact at that time. And these guys followed me throughout the day and noted minute by minute what I was doing and wrote it down in a log, which was eventually a 50-plus a page uh, dossier about me and everything that I did over the course of the day. Mm. Now, since the reunification of Germany, such archives have been made available to those who have been um, victims of the Stasi or those who have been observed by that. So I've looked at my file, and I was struck by, even with 10 Stasi agents following me, how relatively little they know about me compared to what companies know about all of us today in the internet era. Uh-huh. So it's much, much easier to follow what people are doing with digital information than in the old-fashioned cloak-and-dagger spy case where people would follow you around and observe what you were doing. And I think that was the origins of how I became interested in this whole issue of what happens to our information, who uses it, and um, how it can be used for good and for bad. Right. That must have been kind of scary <laughs> since you knew they were following you, right? Nothing, did they well, never well, talk to you? The job, <laughs> the job of, of, such, of the Stasi was to try to do it surreptitiously without being noticed. And so uh, even though there are photos of me, for example, uh, throughout the day, I didn't really know that they were on my tail. Um, mm. So they were successful. I mean, they were, they were a very uh, adept group of, of <laughs> intelligence agents. But um, what they really knew about me, uh, as I mentioned, is fundamentally little compared to um, what a, a much more sophisticated data broker or, or dossier about you today would be commercially available. Yeah, it's pretty frightening when you think of all the databases that are combined in the buying and selling and sharing and uh, <clears throat> profiling that they do. Uh, it, it's, uh, people don't even recognize how, how really scary that, that is. So who are the most unlikely uh, persons um, who've been gathering data, you know, that you came across from all your research? Well, so, uh, you know, I mentioned the early story of how I was interested in this topic. Uh, Over the last four or five years, I've spent a lot of time researching this this topic. It's been my full-time focus to write articles and books about it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to look at who was gathering the personal data about us, our customer information, and what were they doing with it. Now, of course, you sort of suspect that Facebook has a lot of information about you and Google and other big companies uh, are very tuned to what you're interested in trying to sell you products. But it's, it's quite surprising to me just the vast array of different industries, different kind of people that gather information about us. And the most surprising uh, person who gathered data or entity that gathered data about us um, is the former guitarist of Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page. <laughs> and th- Jimmy Page is a data collector because if you uh, go to his website, and this may have changed since I originally looked at this, but you go to his website, jimmypage.com, yeah. and in order to visit the site, you need to give all sorts of information, your name, address, uh, date of birth, email, <laughs> and so on. And um, this is not to buy an old album or some kind of collectible item. This is only to go see what's inside the website. Mm. So you have to believe that if someone um, as, as legendary as a 1970s rock and roll god like Jimmy Page is gathering data about you, this is a pretty widespread practice. <laughs> 
Well, I wonder what he does with that. Did you ever find out I, what he I does with that? Page, and I think he's not personally kind of doing the data gathering. He has, you know, someone to set up the site for him. Yeah. Um, and, and it could be used for purposes that you may find pleasant. It could be by knowing your birthday, uh, you know, there, there's your an birthday. email, some kind of <laughs> greetings that come out from Jimmy Page. Right. But it, it may, typically this stuff is, is overwhelmingly companies want this information to sell you stuff. Right. Usually it's not about evil, um, but it could be evil. And that's, that's the interesting uh, different faces that you have of the world of personal data. I don't know if you remember the case of DocuSearch several years ago where DocuSearch was an online uh, broker of data that had sold information to a young gentleman who had um, actually had had a crush on this young girl when they were in high school and she shunned his advances or didn't even know about it. And he ended up buying the data on her from DocuSearch and went and found where she worked and then killed her. And um, there was a big lawsuit against DocuSearch for them just selling this information. But I don't know if you remember about that. That must have been about eight or ten years ago. But we've got data brokers that can gather enough information, and if they sell it to someone, it can be used for evil purposes. Right. So, I mean, there's the upside and the the downside. Now, um, what you cite is a pretty dramatic case of someone using the personal data of where you are um, to commit the ultimate crime in this case. But as I said, typically it's about selling you things, it, but it could also be very uh, positive. It could be an old friend that you're really glad to hear from who has right. found you and gotten in touch after all these years. So there's nothing intrinsically bad or discomforting about um, this data. I, I think what many people find a bit un, uh, unnerving is that you don't really know who has the data and what they're doing with it. And right. that, that's what I've tried in my research to kind of highlight what kind of companies gather data, what do they do with it, and what say or not do you have in this whole data collection that involves you. And then we have the government collecting data, like the Ed- Edward Snowden's revelations. So so everybody's collecting get data on us, and, and the government buys it from a lot of the com- from the uh, commercial data brokers, too. So it's uh, fascinating stuff. So, well, so I focus in my research largely on commercial collection. And, right. of course, the, the government can be very sophisticated in gathering information about you um, if they're interested. And so the Snowden case shows that um, people who are targets would be subject to really uh, deep scrutiny and, and, and deep, sophisticated ways of, of following. But the, the U.S. government is not interested in every last citizen, 300-plus million people. That's not uh, the focus of their work. Whereas for a data broker, they really do want comprehensive coverage yes. of hundreds of millions of people to sell you stuff. And that's right. where I think it's more interesting to most people on a day-to-day basis. That's where the the day-to-day uh, data gathering is going on. Right. And I think of the big data brokers like Axiom and, and LexisNexis and all these big data brokers that, that we're selling to the government. So it's uh, it's amazing. So let's talk about this book, though. And, and why did you focus part of the book on casinos and how they gather information on customers? So Las Vegas is very interesting in a number of regards when it comes to personal data. Um, Firstly, a lot of the basis of the files that you talked about with these data broker companies, you just cited um, Axiom and some others, they, they first base them on public records, the information you have to give 
in, in everyday occurrences with the government. So, for example, Las Vegas, more people are married than anywhere else in the United States. And that's an example of a public record that can be used by data brokers. Mm-hmm. Um, Las Vegas is also very sophisticated in uh, video surveillance because a big casino might have three or four or 5,000 cameras looking both at customers and, and back of the house. Um, And Las Vegas is very sophisticated in customer loyalty programs. And that's where you have the choice whether or not you want to give up your personal data or not. So in Las Vegas, you can uh, go and gamble anonymously if that's what you prefer. But if you want to have all sorts of benefits, such as a free room or free meals or other perks, um, you may choose to give up uh, your personal information and let them track you throughout throughout your play uh, or through many months or years, depending on how often you return. And the Las Vegas example is interesting because you have a choice. Um, but once you give up your data, they know a lot about you. Yeah, but it, it's like a, pr- a quid pro quo, though, because you're, you're giving up your data, you're opting in, and then you get a free week or something at Paris Hotel or, or something. It's, it's, uh, I know a lot of people who do that, and they get something back for it. So it's, Exactly, and, and the first of these modern loyalty programs dates back to 1981 when American Airlines introduced the first um, modern loyalty program, as I mentioned, and, and it's been very common in many industries since then. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, they can follow you as where your travels are or in the casino. They know what you eat in the restaurant. They know uh, how often you gamble. And if you gamble on machines, such as slot machines, to the penny, they know what you uh, play. It's a little um, more of guesswork if you're playing dice or other games. Um, they know if you go to the spa. They know how often you visit. There's a tremendous amount of information that you do give up, but there is this benefit um, if you choose to join the program. And that's why Las Vegas is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. That must have been a fun place to do research, too. <laughs> yes, of course, because with through Las Vegas, you were able to tell the story that is potentially difficult to understand, that of, of data, and it could be dull. But with Las Vegas, you have um, sex and crime and intrigue and business um, fortitude and all sorts of stuff going on that um, makes it much more compelling. That's why I spent a lot of time there research, researching this book. So how about Caesar's Palace? Um, what was distinctive about what they do? So a lot of the book tells the narrative of, of Caesar's, the largest casino company. Right. And in, what they did is they were more clever in gathering data about people than the other companies, uh, more clever in getting people to join their loyalty program. Now, if you think about Las Vegas, you think of the Strip and there's hotel after hotel. Some of them have dancing water fountains. Some of them have pyramids. Some of them have singing gondoliers. It's, there's a lot of different places that you could go to to spend your money and right. gamble. And what Caesars was really good at was sort of capturing more of the spend of typical players by giving them really rich rewards by sharing the data. And so, like with many loyalty programs, you might be loyal to an airline and keep flying them because you get better status or more, more miles and more perks. They were really clever in, in stepping up in a sophisticated way the amount of data gathering the customers do through this loyalty program. And, and uh, yeah. So did the other hotels copy that, though? Didn't they copy that? So eventually they did. So what, what Caesars did, it was run by a, um, this was in the 1990s, they recruited a former Harvard Business School professor who was expert on this concept of, of lifetime loyalty of people. And he hired some uh, very sharp data scientists to help run the operation. 
over time, some of the other companies saw that there was great wisdom in that. Now, there's different approaches. There's some more instinctual uh, management styles. So if you think of people like Sheldon Adelson or Steve Wynn, sometimes they just build things because they think people will come, and they've been very successful with that model. Caesars favored a little bit more of this focus on data. But nowadays, it's much more common that casinos will will closely follow the data of their customers to, to build the business. Right, right. So how do data brokers gather their information? You know, we, we hear about all these different data brokers. You can go online and you just type in information broker or data broker, and literally hundreds, <laughs> hundreds will come up. So how do they do it, and and what is the accuracy? Because I know I've done even, you know, we're entitled to get our free LexisNexis one once a year and just giving information about your background. And uh, i got to tell you, there was so many errors in mine, you know? What about that? So basically, your your dossier held by a data broker is an amalgamation of lots of different pieces of information from different places. And uh, the core starts from these public records, when you're born, when you're married, when uh, you buy a house, all sorts of key episodes in your interactions with the, with the public sector. Those things are um, made public and, and can be put into that. Then they add on top of that commercial information, which they buy from lots of different sources. So are you interested in fishing and hunting? Do you like to go uh, certain places on vacation? What magazines do you subscribe to? All sorts of people are selling this information. So it may be companies that are selling it. It may be that your favorite magazines sell this. And again, it's your name, address, phone number, email contact, and it's all added into this big pool about you. As you mentioned, there can be wrong information. So if you filled out some form on the website and it was just there were some typos or wrong information, there may be there may be plenty of wrong information in the file about you. Typically, most of the information is right, um, but some of it may be incorrect. I- interestingly, um, if if your listeners are interested in this. You can go look up your file of one of the biggest data brokers, Axiom. There's a site called aboutthedata.com. And not too long ago, they uh, started this for the first time. You can look up your information. It'll say how many kids they think you have, where they think you live, what they think your interests are. And as you say, you might find that a lot of the information is pretty much on the mark, but they might think you have two children and you have zero children. They may think you've gone to graduate school and you didn't. Um, again, this is data that is used for marketing. So even if there's errors in it, it doesn't really matter. But most of the time, it's, it's fairly accurate. Yeah. You know, when I think about the credit reporting agencies, there's been a lot of research by the United States Public Interest Research Group, and they found that and I don't know about the most recent, but but fairly recent, they found that um, 70% of credit reports had errors, and 20% of those were enough to keep you from getting getting credit or getting a job or getting something. So um, I I really I really doubt whether these there that the uh, data brokers have that much correct information. Has there been any studies on on the percentage of accurate tra- data when you know it was easier to do with credit reports but um it's not as easy to do with these other ki- types of reports because most people don't even have access to them to say this is wrong so you you make a good point and that is different information is used differently and can be much more important so 
if if there's wrong information in your credit report or in a file used to review you for employment, that right. can have very serious consequences. Right. And there uh, should be a higher standard of review. There should be a much higher standard of accuracy for that kind of information. Because if it's wrong and you don't get credit, you don't get a job, um, this can really affect your life in negative ways. Right. Most of the data broker stuff that I'm talking about is used for marketing. So maybe they think you're a woman who's interested in uh, very expensive shoes and you're not, and you don't buy their product. Right, so right. the impact there is not so bad, right? Right, right, um, right. So, you know, if there's 20% wrong information, most of the people they've, they've hit in the marketing campaign. But what you're talking about and on, the, on those um, studies referring to credit reports, that's quite serious, and that's something um, that deserves public scrutiny. The problem is most of the data brokers don't want to reveal uh, to the people right. what they have in about you. So as I mentioned... Right. Axiom has decided to let people see. You can go in and correct it if you want, or you can ask them not to circulate the information. Uh, most of their competitors have not followed that lead, so you usually don't know what they have on you and how accurate it is. Yeah, and then there's the back, the criminal background checks, and a lot of those companies also gather criminal background stuff, and I have been... I've helped so many victims of criminal identity theft where um, the, the, you know, the NCIC, which is the national crime base that the FBI use, is fingerprint-based. But a lot of these data brokers use Social Security numbers, and anybody can use Social Security number. I had a, a victim of criminal identity theft whose, um, whose name and Social Security number was used, but really and truly his finger prints were different from the criminal, but he couldn't get the databases to, to correct things, and then they were sold to TSA when he was working for, um, a, a, you know, the uh, Los Angeles uh, LAX, the, uh, you know, the airport, so that he lost his job. So the criminal background checks are also collected by a lot of these data brokers, and they're selling that information, and they're not using the same data. They're not using the fingerprints, which are the real uh, essence of determining who is the real criminal. So, you know, there's some problems with criminal background checks as well. I don't know if you've ever looked into that, but that's that's a real scary one. Well, that's so you're entering more into this realm of, of really negative consequences of, of yes. data that could happen. Now, yes. again, this is not all the time happening, but right. there are people who try to exploit this information. Now, in the olden days, if you were applying for a job, they would have the authority to look up your background and they would go to a background search firm and look you up. Nowadays, there's many uh, firms on the internet that will uh, gladly sell you this information. And you'll even see uh, ads saying things like, you know, is your neighbor a thief? Look them up. Uh, right, you know, right, is, right. Um, and, and, and they'll use very dramatic language like, be careful, knowing the truth about your friends and family can be very shocking. Uh, so before <laughs> right. you click here, right. you know, th take that into mind. And then, of course, you want to click and spend the $20 to find out the supposed shocking information they know about your coworkers or your family or your friends. Um, so this has been a, a sort of marketing technique. Now, this is stuff that's in the public realm, so criminal arrests and so on, but it can have very negative consequences, and, and sometimes the information, as you pointed out, is, is wrong, and sometimes it's the result of, of, of um, identity theft and other things that can be um, completely misleading. 
So, so let's talk about some of the best practices that these commercial entities should be doing. Do you have um, Do you have some that you can share with us? Well, I think um, interestingly, I, I was talking about Las Vegas as being an example right. because you have a choice. Right. The problem we often have as consumers is we don't know who's gathering the data and what they do with it and whether they supplement it with other information. So uh, firstly, the best companies will be honest and open about what they're doing and give you a choice. Now, it seems a little counterlogical that Las Vegas might be an example, but it is because if you don't want to join their loyalty program, if you don't want to uh, give away your personal data, you can go in, you lay your money on the table, and they won't know who you are, and they don't care. Right. Um, so this kind of choice is not always present. If you if you say to many companies, listen, I'd like to subscribe to your magazine, but is it, is it possible not to sell my data? Often, it's not, right? right. Or often, it's quite obscure. So what I would like to see is something like a, a nutrition label that you see on the back of food. If you care about this, if you care about the fat or the salt or the sugar or some aspect of the nutrition, it's there for you to read and decide what you want to do for yourself. Often, this is not present in the world of data. Companies are quite um, obscure about it. And if you want to find out, you have to read these very long privacy policies that may extend to 5,000 or 6,000 words. and, And even trained lawyers sometimes puzzle over what uh, exactly they're talking about. So right. that's why I think it's, it should be easily stated for an honest company to say, we do or we don't sell your data. We do supplement it with other information. And here's the choice. If you don't want us to do that, we're not going to do that. Right, right. Well, actually, California has a law like that, but not it's not a federal law. and Not all states have that law. So if you're collecting information on the internet, you have to disclose that, you know, but um, it, it isn't necessarily you have a choice. If you want to use that uh, that website, you may have to disclose certain information. So <laughs> The problem of disclosing, though, is sometimes they use language that an ordinary person would find confusing. And exactly. so even the European Union, which has stronger privacy protections in the United States, they may disclose it or give you some sense of it, but sometimes it's sort of confusing what they're, they're talking about. And I think if you've ever seen, you know, Facebook sends you a privacy update or, or one of these companies sends you an update on their policies, it's often right. quite puzzling uh, exactly what has changed and what they're doing now that's different from before. So um, disclosure is good, but in yeah. common, plain English, what would be best of all? Right, right. And disclosure doesn't always mean choice. <laughs> you know, it's like if you want to go to the doctor and um, you have to give up your right to sue or you can't see the doctor <laughs> you have to you know you have to submit to arbitration so sometimes uh, a choice isn't really a choice so what what happened to Caesars in Las Vegas after after your book came out so as I mentioned Caesars was a great success over over the the course of um, many years and growing to become the biggest casino company, but um, and, and growing on the back of this very clever use of, of data. But it's also an example of how big data, gathering endless amounts of information, doesn't tell you everything because um, it cannot predict the future. And so there are two very major things that happened uh, to Caesars. One is that they didn't uh, see that Macau would indeed become the world's biggest casino um, center. So Las Vegas is now only five or six or seven times 
uh, it's five or six or seven times smaller in revenue than Macau, huh. this, this part of China where uh, huge numbers of, of, of big gamblers go and spend tremendous amounts of money. So huh. they didn't invest there because the numbers didn't suggest that it was going to work out. Huh. Um, and also, uh, Caesars was bought out in a leveraged buyout. They took on a lot of debt uh, just before the financial crisis in 2008. That was another thing that big data couldn't tell you. It couldn't exactly tell you that there was going to be a major financial crisis. And so as a result of these two decisions, eventually Caesars had to declare um, bankruptcy. It's it's in bankruptcy protection. Mm. Um, So it shows you that even you could be very clever. um, I mean, you could build a beautiful sandcastle along the the beach side, but if you don't see the the tide is coming in, um, you're still going to suffer. And that's what's happened to them. Um, You know, so big data can be very useful, but it doesn't tell you everything about the future. And that's the interesting twist of of the story uh, there in Las Vegas. Well, we are just about out of time. I know you have a new book coming out, Our Bodies, Our Data. So you have to come back on and tell us all about that because I'm thinking it's all about biometrics. Is that what it's going to be about? I I mean, very briefly, the book is about how uh, we don't know it, but at every turn when we go see the doctor, when we get a prescription, when we get a, a laboratory test of our blood, uh, these entities are selling our data, and it's typically anonymized without our um, personal name, but it has a lot of identifying information about us, and it's put into a dossier about you. So you don't know, but there's parallel information about you that is a commercial product that fuels a multi-billion dollar industry. Scary. I can't wait till that comes out. Well, we are out of time, so I'm going to have everybody go to whatstaysinvegas.com and find out more about your book. Thank you so much, Adam, and we look forward to having you back again, okay? Thank you, Mary. Delighted to be on the show. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website, KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.